0: All right, John, the 17th chapter. Um, This is what we do at the Point Community Church is we just work our way through a book of the Bible section by section. And so sometimes we may look at 10 verses. Uh, This morning we're looking at, I believe, three verses, Um, but that's just kind of what we do. So we find ourselves kind of in the middle, but I think you can pick up as to what's happening. Um, Just for context, this is early in the wee hours Friday morning. The Friday morning that Jesus will um, be arrested um, throughout the day, go through trials, ultimately to be nailed on a cross. It is the, his last, this is the last few hours here on this earth before he will die on a cross and there he will be for three days and then rise again. And Jesus is praying in this part. This is Jesus' prayer. It's called Jesus' high priestly prayer. And we are in uh, John 17, verses 20 through 23. Jesus prays and says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Let's pray. Father, as we um, meet here this morning and we submit and surrender ourselves to you and to your word and to the preaching and the proclamation of your word, would your spirit be with us and do a work upon our hearts? Father, for those who have yet to profess profess faith in you, I pray that your spirit would work drawing them to you, that their eyes would be lifted upward to see you, Christ, the true and living God, and that you would give them the gift of faith, that you would regenerate their hearts and from that they would convert, they would turn to you, place faith in you, repenting of their sins and belief in you, that you would do that. You would resurrect the spiritually dead and do what only you can do. And Father, for those of us that are are yours this morning, would you work your work in us, growing us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. And as the word is preached, grow our faith that we may have faith in you. And even more practically, in accordance to this passage of scripture, I would pray for our unity, that no doubt the enemy hates a unified, loving, humble church, and he would love to destroy this manifestation of that. And would you protect us from the work of the enemy? And would you, even this morning, would you deepen our unity and our love for one another that the world may know that there is a there is a God, that Jesus, you were his son and you are his son and salvation is possible. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You could be seated. So as I said, um, this is Jesus's prayer. Last week, I talked to you a little bit about the fact that it's called Jesus's high priestly prayer. And what that means is Jesus functioning as our high priest. But let's just talk for a few minutes about prayer. I don't know about you, but I find prayer to be a kind of a complex uh, uh, subject matter. And I know like, maybe you think, no, it's like pretty easy. You utter some words, you you know, pour out your heart to God, however you may picture prayer to be. And I would say, yes, those things are true. But whenever you think about it within the framework of who God is, isn't prayer kind of a complex thing? I mean, prayer, as we pray, we're praying to a God who is omniscient. And what that means, the word omniscient means God is all knowing. And what that means is, is like, as you're praying, even though you may sound like you're praying, giving God information, God has never been surprised by any piece of information. Like God has never learned anything. Like a few minutes ago when we prayed and we said, Lord, little Benny is in the hospital. Like God knew that. God wasn't in heaven going like, gosh, I'm glad you told me that. I didn't realize that. We pray to an omniscient God. You and I learn things by new information. You and I, we learn things that we can be surprised by things, but God already knows everything. So prayer is not informational. God is also sovereign. And what that means is God is in complete control and nothing can happen outside of God's control and nothing happens apart from what God has already planned for it to happen. That's what sovereign means. And either God is sovereign or he is not. That means there is not one single maverick molecule in the universe. That also means that God cannot be coerced into doing something that he had not already planned to do. Your prayers are not coercion, getting a reluctant God to do something that he has not already planned to do. And we can also say this, it goes with God's sovereignty. God is good and God is loving that God doesn't need to be talked into doing something to benefit you doing something that is for your ultimate good that God always has his glory and your best in mind. But nevertheless, you and I, we are invited to pray. We just sing about it. We enter into the Holy of Holies. We cry out, Abba, we pray. We've been given the spirit of adoption. The spirit is in us, helping us to pray. Christ has is interceding for us. It's a really a Trinitarian picture in prayer that Jesus invites us throughout the gospels to bring our prayers, to bring our petitions, to bring our supplications, to, per, to bring our perceived needs and to ask, We're invited by Jesus. The God of the universe has told told us to come and to ask. And Jesus even says, and ask anything in my name. That's the invitation. And as God hears, as the Father hears our prayers, there are a couple of ways that the Father can respond to our prayers. God may say, yes, and grant your petition, grant your request, grant what you've asked for. God may say, no. God may say, not now and God may say, you gotta be kidding me, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like that's probably the way that if I could hear God audibly as I pray some of the things I pray, God would probably say to me, Andy, you gotta be kidding me. Is that really what you're asking for? Is that really what you're thinking about? Is that really what's on your mind? But when Jesus prays, the Father doesn't have a multitude of responses to which he responds to the Son in prayer. The Father has really but one, and that is yes. Yes, that rarely, and I can only think of one time in all of the gospels as Jesus prayed that the father did not answer the prayer of the son. And that will be the prayer that will come next. After this prayer, Jesus will select a few of his disciples and they will go with him. He'll cross over into the, cross over the Kidron Valley, go into the, a garden, the garden of Gethsemane, It will be in the garden of Gethsemane that Jesus will fall down upon a rock. Jesus will begin to pray to the Father. Jesus will be in such anguish that he will sweat drops of blood. And as he prays, he will say, Father, if it be your will, let this cup, this bitter cup, let it pass from me. And possibly the only time that Jesus will ever hear his Father say, no, that is not my will. But truly that is an example of Jesus' submission to the Father, not a picture of the father's refusal to answer the son in prayer. And so as we read this text of scriptures, Jesus offers up prayer. And in particular, he's offering up prayers now for his church. We've talked about this. Jesus is petitioning the father for three things in his church. He's asking for God to guard them, for the father to guard them. He's praying for our security. Last week we looked at, he's praying for our purity, that the father would sanctify them, that the father would purify them. And this morning we look at, the. he is asking here in this time, he's asking for the unity of the church. He's asking for the Father to unify his church. And so the question we must ask is, did the Father hear and answer Jesus's prayer for unity? Think about it. You and I, for the most part, probably many of us, we would identify as being Protestant. That means we are the protesters. We are the one 502 years ago, our forefathers of our denomination. We protested against the Catholic church and a reformation took place. And now some 502 years later, you have thousands of denominations, hundreds of thousands of churches. You have your Baptist and Southern Baptist and American Baptist and Reformed Baptist and Anabaptist and Methodists, and Presbyterians, and multiple denominations under Presbyterians, and Pentecostals, and Pentecostals with seatbelts on, and Pentecostals with seatbelts off, right? And and Charismatics, and Hyper-Charismatics, and Lutherans, and Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, Christian Independents, Baptist Independents, Fundamentals, Conservatives, Liberals, the denomination that is non-denominational, Right. Churches with smells and bells, churches with lasers, lights, and fog machines, right? The ch- list is endless. And when we think about church unity, we can also think about church splits. Locally, how many of you, not a show of hands, have lived through a church split? We have, my wife and I have, and it was super painful, super ugly, and super hard. My grandfather liked to talk about tell a story about a guy who was uh, rescued off of a a deserted island. He had been there some time. And as the rescuers came up to rescue this guy, they pulled him aboard onto a boat. They looked back on the island where the guy had been living and they they noticed that the guy had built three huts. The guy gets in and they go, sir, can we ask you, uh, you know, it's good to have him, give him some food, water, whatever. And they ask him, they go, why did you have three huts? And he goes, well, it's really simple. I had three huts because the first hut there was my house. That's where I live. And the second hut was uh, where I went to church. It's the church that I had built. They said, yeah, but what about the third hut? And he said, the third hut was where I used to go to church, but they made me mad, so I left. (laughs) And it's corny, right? Let's give it that, it's corny. And it's somewhat funny and it's somewhat true. And the question we must ask then: did the father hear and did the father answer Jesus's prayer for unity? And that's what I want to, answer that question um, over the course of this sermon is that he did and he is. Let's start here with the context of the prayer. Christian unity is based on truth and is to never be pursued at the expense of truth. That's kind of the context. Before we get down into the actual weeds of the sermon, before we get down into what is Christian unity and how can we define it and how can we pursue it? Let's start here with this, that Christian, true Christian unity, it's based upon the truth and it's never to be pursued at the expense of truth. And here's what I mean by that. Many well-meaning people may say, the problem within the churches and the reason why you have all of these denominations is theology. That's the problem, it's dogma and doctrine. And so what we need to do is we need to throw out theological doctrine that divides Jesus's church. What we need to do is ignore theological doctrine. What does that matter as long as we all worship God? We all worship the same God, right? That's what people would say. People say what we need to do within the church is to find the lowest common denominator, and then let's rally the, our faith around that one thing. And I would say this, that's very different and what the apostles in the Bible do, and what the New Testament describes for us, and what the New Testament even prescribes for us. In fact, in this prayer in John 17, notice if you will, if you if you could go back and we can read the whole thing, Jesus is praying that truth would permeate his church. That is what he's praying for. It's it's truth that would identify his church. It's truth that will call sinners out of the world. It's truth, he said, will sanctify his church, and it is truth that will purify his church. It is truth that would also unify his church. Look at what he says in verse number 20 as Jesus prays. I do not ask for these only. That's these 11 apostles that Jesus had been talking about. I'm not just asking for these, that they would be unified and held secure and that they would be purified. But also, I'm praying for those who would believe in me. And how would we come to belief in in Christ? Through their word. Through the apostles' teaching, through the apostles' word, and just as I said, in just a uh, a short few hours, Jesus will die, Jesus will be buried, Jesus will be resurrected from the dead, Jesus would appear to his disciples and spend about 40 days with them, and then Jesus will ascend. He will ascend unto heaven. Jesus will send his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit will illuminate the truth it will reveal the truth to these men, and to their colleagues, and their preaching, and their teaching, and their proclamation, and their writing will then become inscripturated. It will not be from them alone, but it will be revealed to them from God, and they will write the holy. They will write holy scripture. They will write the New Testaments, and the New Testament would be preserved for us. It is not their word alone. It is the revelation of God, and it is the foundation of the church. Paul writes this in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. He says, "So, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. So he's writing to the church in Ephesus saying, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're now fellow citizens. That's unity with the saints and members of the household of God. And how has the household of God come into existence? Well, look at verse 20. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. He's not just talking about those men, but what he's talking about is their their writings. He's talking about the prophets as the primary ones who have written the Old Testament and the apostles as the ones who will write the New Testament, in whom... The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The foundation of the church, Jesus is the chief cornerstone and the foundation of the church is the apostolic teaching, the apostolic truth that has been entrusted to these men. Anything that is built apart from the New Testament And the Old Testament, anything that is built apart from the prophetic and apostolic teaching, the teaching of the Bible is not the church of Jesus Christ. And that was the rub 502 years ago as the Protestants protested and the reformation began. It began because the church was no longer built upon God's revelation, God's word, but it was now built upon human tradition and human inspiration that one of the cries of the Reformation was sola scriptura, scripture alone. What they fought for and divided over was that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And biblical truth is fundamental to biblical faith. Otherwise, it's just make-believe. Otherwise, it's just, Invisible friends for adults. That God is the God who has revealed himself to us. And how has he revealed himself to us? He's revealed himself and his ways and the ways of salvation and the building of his church through his word. That biblical truth is fundamental to biblical faith and therefore it is necessary for biblical unity. Then, in fact, what we see throughout history is whenever biblical truth, whenever and, and also in our contemporary age, that whenever biblical truth is ignored and reduced down and disregarded, it produces a very anemic church and a very weak unity. Whenever truth in seasons of time in the churches and in church movements where truth is lifted up and truth is studied like the Reformation, when truth is central, it is in those times that the church flourishes and unity, even unity across denominational borders, is real and it's strong. So first we do not ignore truth in order to experience unity, but we pursue truth in order to to experience true Christian unity. Second, Christian unity is primarily spiritual in nature, not just relational, or even I could add to this organizational. So Christian unity is primarily spiritual, not just something that is relational. Let's go look back at the text. Look at what Jesus is doing in the text. As Jesus is praying, he's bringing up two different analogies. He's praying for this unity in his church and Jesus will draw upon two analogies. Verse 21 is the first one. He says that they may be one just as you father are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us. The first analogy that Jesus draws upon is the relational unity of the church. The second one is found in verse number 23. He says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love them. I mean, even as you love me. The second analogy is the church's union with Christ. So the first one, the first analogy is the relational unity of the father. What Jesus is praying here is Jesus is saying the same kind of, relationship, if you will, the same kind of unity that you and I, Father, share, that that's the same kind of oneness that would make up the church. Now, I know that when we talk about the Trinity, that, that it's a real mind bender, is it not? Is that just me? Like when you try to really think about the, the, the Trinity, like, God existing in three persons, yet all being God—Father, Son, and Holy Spirit—and I know, like through the years, we tried. Well, what kind of analogy can we grab and talk about? Well, we can talk about we can talk about water, how it can you know be in the form of ice, and it could be in the form of water, and it could be in the form of steam, and all of those things. And generally, what we usually do when we try to do that is we usually try we usually commit heresy. We don't. We haven't helped it very far along, right? We've just committed heresy. And I will say this, like. I'm okay with God being hard to grasp and hard to understand, aren't you? I mean, let's just be honest for a minute. A lot of you struggle to color coordinate your outfit, right? A lot of you, like me, have to use your fingers to count, right? Do simple math. Some of us struggle with that simple mechanics. Now, some of you in here are brilliant. I get that. And you still struggle with the Trinity, right? But like, don't you want a God who's beyond your human reasoning and comprehension. I mean, you kind of go, okay, I kind of got him figured out, but there's that other part. And that's the way it is when we think about the Trinity, God existing in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, maybe this diagram won't commit heresy, but maybe it will help you. It's not a picture of God, but it's a picture of how the Trinity relates one to another. Here's, here's the picture. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They, the Father is not the Son, The Father is not the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is not the Son. See how that works? But yet they are all God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Does that that help? Maybe, I don't know. It might just also just mind bender as well. And what Jesus is praying is the same way that we are unified, the same bond that holds us together, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the church would have that same sort of, of oneness, that even though they would be distinct persons, right? That's the Trinity. They would be the same as in the Trinity. The Trinity is same in substance, equal in power and in glory. That's his prayer. And the second analogy used, so there's one analogy and we'll get back to that in a minute, but there's one analogy. The second analogy is that Christ's union with the church. He says that they may also may be in us, again, mind bender, and I'm in them, and you're in me, that they may become perfectly one. Christ is in us through our union with Christ. So when you and I come to believe in Jesus, we are united with Jesus. It's a spiritual union, but it's a real union, a reality just as if uh, those of you who are married in the room, you said vows, you said covenant, right? In a marriage. Yesterday, I got to witness the marriage of, of Noah and Mary Beth, and it was an awesome, beautiful time. And it it, it it helps me to remember my own union with my wife, and you know, some 24 years ago, when we said vows and we were united as man and wife. And in the same way, you and I, through our faith in Christ, you and I are united to Christ. And that's what he's saying in the same way. And both of these, the union of the Trinity and our union with Christ, they are spiritual in nature. And thus they are invisible. We cannot see the Trinity. We receive it by faith. We cannot see our union with Christ. We receive it by faith too. In the same way, genuine Christian unity, the unity of the church, it's spiritual in nature. Therefore it's invisible it's unfelt it's not relational it's not organizational it's spiritual in nature now we'll get to the relational part but let's just focus in on the even on the spiritual side like the church there's some there's something visible visible about the church but then there's a an invisible reality of the church i mean look at us here today we're a we're 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 a, we're a small slice of pie in jesus's church and yet there is something visible about the church right there are those of you here that have gathered together as the church. We've gathered together to worship Jesus. And we would look at this and say, okay, this is a church gathering. There's another visible picture of the church. There are some of you who are members of this church, or maybe possibly you're members of another church. That means that your name is on a roll. You've identified as a Christian. You say, I wanna join with you, lock arms with you for the purpose of mission and for the purpose of you know discipleship and serving. We wanna hold an accountability Hold elders hold me accountable. So your members, there's a membership role. That's the visible, tangible parts of the church. You could do that for a multitude of churches around, and you would get a large number of people. There are people in our culture; it's still somewhat popular. That whenever the census comes out, I think next year, and it's now going to be all electronics. We'll all be confused on that, but there will be questions as to what do you identify in in your faith, and there will be people that say, "I am a Christian." I I identify as a Christian. That's the visible part of the church. And yet the truth is the church is actually invisible because many of those people will be not true believers. They will be unregenerate. They'll be unsaved. They'll be false converts. Even here today, there are people here that probably are not yet regenerate, not yet saved, don't have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. You play church games. You may be on a, on a roll. You may have got baptized like Natalie, or you may have got, got baptized in a super fancy church, or maybe you got baptized in a creek somewhere, but you're not genuinely saved. You're not genuinely converted. You're up, there may be false converts here. People that would say, oh, yes, I'm a saved, but on the day of judgment, they'll stand before Jesus and Jesus will say to many, that's scripture, depart from me for I never knew you. What is that? That's a false convert, someone who's pretended the hypocrite, the one who's played the game, the one who's put on a mask and pretended to be saved. They're part of the visible church, but they're not part of the invisible church. We can pull up a role of all of our members and we can look at that. You know, we have right now 206 people that we consider members and also attenders with us in this church, 206 people. But in that 206, not all 206 are genuinely saved. There's an invisible reality here. And that's what Jesus is praying for. That is the true church that is truly unified. That the true church, we are united to Christ and we're united in Christ. That we are, now, now, let me, before I go much further, let me just give you the good news, right? The good news is this. Since there may be some here this morning who are not genuinely saved, here's the good news. You ready? Today's the day of salvation. As a pastor friend and mentor says that anybody can get in on this, that today may be the day that you realize by the work and the gift of the Holy Spirit that you're not genuinely saved, that you're playing church games, that you're unregenerate. Maybe you've just yet to profess faith in Christ and you've yet to do it even publicly and follow Christ um, in baptism as he commands. And good news, today's the day of salvation that whosoever wants to be saved may be saved. Like that's, that's good news. You don't, whenever I was sharing the gospel with my son, he looked at me he said, Dad, you think I want to go to hell? I hope not, buddy. I don't want to go to hell. You don't have to. that's good news. Repent. Call upon the name of Jesus and you will be saved. And he did in the Kroger parking lot on the west side of town. Maybe today's the day of salvation for you. Maybe today by the work of the spirit, you realize that you need to be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord and you could be saved. Cuz the truth is is as elders we're not given like a a, 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 a the spirit of divination or you know it, like our uh, discernment isn't that great. I mean sometimes it's obvious, right? I mean recently uh, at at, a, at the church we were helping a, a lady it was a benevolence call and she needed a, a new apartment and we were working hard, Pastor Derek and I, and the folks at uh, Rosam, an organization we work with, and we're working real hard to help this girl find a, to find a, a new apartment that she can afford. And we're doing this and then a, she, she asked, she's like, why would you all do this? Why are you helping me so much? And I was like, it's, it's grace, it's an extension of grace. The Bible says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And we wanna be an extension of that kindness. And so I'm sharing the gospel with her and I hear her sister on the other side say, tell him we're already a Christian, right? And what I wanted to say back, but I didn't is, I've already been on your Facebook page. You're not a Christian. Because I had. I'd look and seen what her life is all about because she posted every thought on there. And you're not a Christian, hon. You're not regenerate. You're not saved. You may... Again, be part of that visible church, but you're not part of the invisible church. You may profess faith, but you don't possess faith. That's the difference. There's a lot of people who may profess salvation, may profess faith, but they don't possess salvation and they don't possess faith. The truth is, the absolute beautiful truth is, those of us though, who are genuinely saved and saved by Christ, not by our works, but by our faith in Him and Him alone, then you and I, we are united to Him and we are united one to another. And both of which are an unbreakable bond held together by by the very power of God. This unbreakable unity, this unbreakable spiritual unity is greater than geographical boundaries It's greater than cultural divides. It's greater than class divisions. It's greater than ethnic segregation. It's greater than generational gaps. If you've never experienced that part of the invisible church of Christ, and I invite you to go with me on a mission trip or go with Bo or somebody else on a mission trip, go to Romania or Haiti or Honduras or somewhere else where you can worship with brothers and sisters in a different language, and it can experience that, that unbreakable bond. Lastly, and more practically, let's look at this. Christian unity should also be visible. So it is invisible and it's spiritual, but it should also be visible and experiential. It's not just invisible, but neither is it just visible, but it should be visible and experiential so that the world might believe. Now, let me just hold off for a second because I just thought of this when I was reading that text. That's that, so that the world might believe part. And that's a, that echoes the Old Testament. That echoes what God was doing in Israel. God was calling and rescuing and redeeming and saving and setting apart and sanctifying a nation for himself. And what God says over and over and over again in the Old Testament, so that the world may know there is a God in Israel. And you and I, we live secure lives, trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone, not freaking out by the world. Like that's when he prays for security, it's that our faith in him may may, uh, supersede all of the chaos in this world. And that is so that the world may believe, so that the world may know. You and I, we live purified lives. We live lives unto the Lord, where we're pursuing personal holiness. Not so that the world can just look at us and go, oh, look at those religious wingnuts, but so that the world might believe that there is a God, that Jesus is real. And our unity is putting that on display as well, so that the world might believe. There's an apologetic to our Christian unity that the outside world looks in on and God by his grace may use that to draw them out of their sin, out of their lostness to be saved and place faith in him. That those on the outside of the invisible church, that they may see our unity and then come to believe that he is who he says that he is. And that's what we're shooting for that our unity should be visible and it should be experiential and it is relational as well. It's not just spiritual, but because it's spiritual, it's real and it really works in our hearts and our lives, just as our union with Christ is real. We feel it and we experience it. We know that we have peace with God because of the finished work of Christ. And in the same way, you and I, our experience of unity should be real. That even though the Trinity is spiritual and invisible, it doesn't mean that it isn't a reality. And as a reality, the Trinity exists in relational harmony. So remember when we looked at that diagram, we said that there was one God, three persons, each are distinct from the other, but each relate to each other in in perfect harmony. Now I can't sing a tune in a bucket, but I somewhat understand relational, I understand the word Harmony. And the harmony is used on purpose here. What harmony is, is different notes that complement each other. Multiple notes that make up a chord. They're in a chord. And that is how the Trinity exists. The Father is not the Son, and they are not the Spirit, but they exist in relational harmony. And we can even take it one step further. As we think about how through scripture the Father and the Son and the Spirit relate to one another. We can draw from that. We can draw out um, three virtues, if you will. And this is what I mean by that. First and foremost, as the Father relates to the Son and they relate to the Spirit, they relate in a relationship of love. That's first. That's paramount. The Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. This is where it gets tricky. The spirit is actually a manifestation of that love, but that's the mind bender part, right? The spirit's the mind bender part. God is love. And the primary interaction of the Trinity is that of love. There's never a time that the father does anything unloving to the son. And there's never a time that the son does anything. Anything happens outside of that perfect love for one another. So, first, we could say that the Trinity exists in a relationship of love. Second, we could say this the Trinity exi- ex- exists in a relationship of submission. There's order within the Trinity. The Father is in authority, and the Son willingly and joyfully submits to the Father's authority. The, Son, the Spirit will, willingly and joyfully submits to both the Father and the Son. There's order here. It's not chaos, but order. Third, they exist in a relationship of humility and deference. Jesus will say over and over again that he lives to to glorify the Father. And the Father will say he lives to glorify the Son. And the Spirit ever lives to glorify both the Father and the Son. That's humility and deference. It is the picture of my, my friend, Michael Graham, he calls it, it's the Trinitarian dance where they're constantly in deference to one another. No, 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 you, no, 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 you, no, no, you be glorified. No, I'm, I'm here to glorify you. No, 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 I'm here to glorify you. Like as you read the gospels, that's what Jesus is saying, especially we've seen it all throughout the book of John. I'm here to glorify the father. And what we see in these latter parts, no, 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 I'm here to glorify the son. Give me the glory that was rightfully due mine. Okay, you can have it, it's yours. And as we think about that, a relationship of love and a relationship of submission and a relationship of humility and a relationship of deference, then I want you to listen to what Paul tells the church in Philippi. As Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Paul says these words to them. I'm just going to read for you, to you for just a minute or so out of Philippians 2. If you want to follow along, you can. It's in your pew Bible. It's page 980. But here's what Paul writes to the church and says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, then Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That's unity. Having the same love, being in full accord, harmony, right? And of one mind. And now he's going to get practical to them. Because of this, because of this unity, because you're in harmony one to another, verse number three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Just like the Trinity, just like God, I want you to look like that. I want you to interact with one another. I mean, it's 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 as if there should be on every Sunday morning Like there should be a line out front by the doors where the greeters are holding the doors, but the people are going, no, 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 you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. Like that's what he's saying. Like there's a preference where we're preferring others. Now I know that's silly, but that's really what he's getting at. No, I prefer you over me. Do nothing, he says, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse number four, let each of you look out not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though Jesus though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, that's submission, being born in the likeness of men, submission, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, I'm glorifying you now, son, your obedience. I'm glorifying you and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. So again, the the very picture of the Trinity of who God is and how God exists should permeate the church to the degree that it shapes us to be like him so that relationally, relationally we act Like him, We can even move on, but I wanted you to notice as Paul gets on, he says, do all things in verse 14 without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's the same thing so that the world may know that God is, that Jesus is who he says he is. Goodness, Point Community Church. May we be that kind of church. A church humbled and united by love, a church in in genuine relationship and loving deference, living in and loving and deference one to another. But the truth is, is most church most churches split. At least it's been my finding. Most churches, now most denominations split, a lot of times for theological reasons. But most churches split out of selfishness. It's because we wrongly sing the hymn, have thine own way. And we sing it like this, have mine own way. Have my way, may may my way. I know what's best in this church, may my way. And that's the opposite of deference. In fact, I want to say this, disagreements and even divisions are inevitable in Christ's church. But discord should never be Acceptable should be unacceptable. Disagreements and divisions are inevitable, but discord should be unacceptable. That as we read through the New Testament, it's filled with divisions and and disagreements. And early on in the Book of Acts, well, actually in the middle of Book Book of Acts, uh, John Mark, one of the you know key figure there, John Mark, he will kind of split the the missionary team of of uh, of Paul and Silas, that Paul and Silas will have a disagreement as to like, you know, the, how, how reliable is John Mark on the mission field? And so Silas and John Mark will go on to carry on the mission and Paul will go and grab Barnabas and they will separate. I mean, here's a guy that will separate one of the greatest missionary teams ever to be known. Now, later on in Paul's life, Paul in his last book in 2 Timothy, he'll write, send me Mark to me because he's been a great help to me but nevertheless, in this part in Acts, they're separate. Paul will oppose Peter to his face because he's not teaching with what accords with the gospel. It's one of my favorite verses. Paul will write the book of Philippians in part because two ladies in the church at Philippi, Iodia and Senechi are all tangled up and they ask the church to intervene to help these women to agree in the Lord. Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part, or there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. The truth is, is disagreements and possibly even divisions within Christ's church are inevitable. But discord among the church should be unacceptable. And what I mean by discord is I mean bitterness, anger, vengeance, vindication, vindictiveness, selfishness, those types of emotions that are not rooted in love and humility and deference, that we should never accept those in the church and don't accept them in your own heart. Disagreements and divisions are inevitable, but discord among the church should be unacceptable. And I think that's a good word for us as we come to the conclusion. It's a good word for us as many of us think about In the present, we think about the past and we think about the future. Think about the past in this way that I know that a great number of you have left other churches to come and be members here. And that's fine. My wife and I, we left a church, a church that we love, to come be part of the Point Community Church. I wasn't hired to be on staff. I started off as a dude in a pew, just like many of you dudes are in pews a calling on my life or vocational ministry, but nevertheless, this wasn't what we had in mind when we came here. But we left another church to come here and many of you have left other churches to come here. And let me just ask you this question. Have you left those churches on good terms? Even today, and some of you, it may be 10, 15 years in the past since you've left that church, is there discord in your heart toward those people or towards those pastors even. And maybe they sinned against you and maybe they've wronged you. I've been there. But have you forgiven them? A couple of years into our life here, I had to, the Lord dealt with my heart on that issue that I had unresolved um, issues and unforgiveness and bitterness in my heart, not towards my last church, but towards the first church I was a part of and towards the leadership. And I had to prayerfully come to a place where God brought up that bitter root. And so let me ask you, what about you? Is there a root of bitterness in your heart toward them? And what do you need to do to bring about forgiveness? And it's also a good word for us as we think about Christian unity, as we heed, as we we prepare for the future. It's a good word for us to heed as we prepare for the future. Good grief, we as a church have so many decisions in front of us that because of the move to this location two and a half years ago, we have decisions that I never thought we would have to make still in front of us to make. There's gonna come a time, five, ten 10 years from now, that we're gonna to have to replace this carpet in here. And what will we do? What color will we choose? Will we rip it out and let the concrete shine? What will we do? And we laugh about that, and yet we know there are churches that split and people that divide over lesser issues than even that. And that's just one decision that's in front of us. There's a multitude of others. May our relational unity point community church, members and attenders May we never take the unity that we share for granted. May we hold it trusting in the Lord who's the one who sustains it. May we always look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ with a genuine love, with what Paul writes whenever he writes in Romans, uh, I think the 13th chapter, and he says, love each other with a brotherly love, with a brotherly affection. No, no. Romans the 12th chapter, may our love always be genuine and may we love each other with a brotherly affection. May we always try to outdo one another in showing honor to each other. May we be genuinely humble and genuinely a church of deference. And may Jesus use that to draw more people in to belief and faith in him. Let's pray. Father, protect our unity that we share. And Father, work upon our hearts that as we come before you, Lord, in this time and in this moment, that would you um, superintend, as I pray often, superintend this moment, that we come to observe the Lord's Supper. We come to do this in a very humble fashion. Remembering that it's yours and it's been offered to us and we give thanks to you for it. And remembering that it represents Jesus your broken body and your blood that will be shed for us. And you do that to redeem us from a world of chaos, to bring us into your family, to adopt us in, to show dignity and honor to us, to love us as your own, as we even read there in Scripture. Reveal your glory to us even in this moment and we be forever changed by it. Do your work upon our hearts, Lord. You know who's genuinely saved and who isn't. I pray that you would draw those who have yet to trust in you, draw them to you even this morning. It's in your name we pray, amen.